0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning um, as we return to our teaching series, The King and His Army, uh, after taking a few weeks out. So, uh, just as by way of reminder, in the first half of this series, uh, we looked for, first of all uh, at the Messiah, King Jesus, uh, the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. Uh, then we explored the breadth and width of the kingdom and how the gospel of the kingdom is more than uh, just individual salvation. Uh, Then John laid out for us the basis for the church as the army of God, Uh, this army of uh, King Jesus, and Jenny spoke about our marching orders, looking at what our mission is as the King's army. And then lastly, um, a few weeks ago, Caleb had us marching on our knees, uh, building on the important truth that prayer is our foundation uh, in the fight. So as we go on to look at the next part of our series today, um, I want to ask a question. Uh, So what does the Bible say? Is the first thing that God gives to people after creation. What's the first thing after God created the world and everything in it and made people in his image as his representatives to his creation? What's the first thing he gives them? And this is a free fall. A day off. <laughs> okay, yeah, Sabbath is very important principle laid out, yeah. There's a specific thing that it describes. Is it? Is it? Ooh. Is that better? Yeah, yeah, there's a specific thing that it describes God as giving to people. Any other ideas? His breath. He breathed into them. Yeah? Yes? Dominion. Dominion. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Authority. Authority. These are all great. This is not at all where I'm going with this. (laughs) But they are good answers. Um, Okay, I'm just going to read it. Genesis chapter 1 from verse 27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. So God makes people, God blesses people. You know, we hear of the the dominion, the authority over creation to uh, care for and uh, steward it. But the first thing that God gives to people is food. So what does this have to do with the king and his army? Well, as uh, Napoleon said, or maybe Frederick the Great, there's some uncertainty about who actually said it first, but as one of them said, an army marches on its stomach. So we're going to be looking today at marching on our stomachs. So just to clarify, not because of some comments by 18th and 19th century European military leaders, but because food is a theme that runs throughout the whole Bible. And the way we use and treat food as individuals and with others can have kingdom-building effects. So we are going to be all over today. I'm trying to just kind of show the whole scope of, of food in the Bible. So I thank you for bearing with me in advance. But we've seen that God gives the first people food. And then in verse 31 it says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. So let's start here. First things first, food is good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, food is good. <laughs> so if we can have the band back up, then... Uh, yeah. <laughs> So we've seen that food is good. It's a provision from God to us. And this is an important point for the writer of Genesis here because the prevailing view of other local cultures at the time was that humanity was created essentially as a slave species to provide food for the gods, that we were there to feed the gods. The Bible teaches, on the other hand, that God made us and that it is God who feeds us, not the other way around. He provides the means for us to have food. So food is good and food is a gift. Food is also natural, but not not supernatural. Natural, but not not supernatural. What's he going on about now? Well, food is natural. We see that it's a good part of God's creation. It's part of the natural world. We see from the creation story, then later in Genesis and also in the Psalms and elsewhere in the Bible, that plants and animals and what we might know as uh, the food chain or the food web is established as part of the natural order but food doesn't become irrelevant or outmoded in the presence of the supernatural and this is important as we consider how food can be kingdom building because sometimes we separate categories in our minds of natural and supernatural and we see natural as well that's just the normal life stuff and supernatural as well that's the stuff of the kingdom That's what the Christian life is really about. But I want to suggest that there's far more of an overlap between the two than we often think. This separation between natural and supernatural, or between physical and spiritual, is far more thinking from ancient Greek philosophy that kind of bled through into Christian thinking in the Middle Ages than it is a biblical worldview. Let me give you two uh, quick examples from the life of Jesus. So Luke chapter 8 from verse 49. Uh, The background here is that there's a synagogue leader called Jairus whose daughter was very sick. He's sent to ask Jesus to come because he'd heard that Jesus would be able to heal her. But Jesus gets uh, held up on the way healing someone else and it's a great story. You can read about it in Luke chapter 8. But then verse 49 says, while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Isn't it interesting? This is unmistakably what we might call a supernatural event. Can we agree on that? Jesus takes a dead girl by the hand and raises her to life. But again, the first thing he says is for her to be given something to eat She has a natural physical body, which is a good part of God's good creation. And even in the presence of an outstanding, supernatural, miraculous event, food is still relevant and necessary. She's just come back from the dead. Someone get the kid a Mars bar or something, right? (laughs) We can see another example in John's Gospel, chapter 21. So this is after Jesus has gone to the cross, died and risen again with a glorious, imperishable resurrection body. His disciples are fishing on the Sea of Galilee, but it says that all night they caught nothing. And then verse 4, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John the writer of the gospel, said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there, with fish on it and some bread. I love that he already had fish. Thank you. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, what? This is a picture of the gospel going out across the world? No. I've been raised from the dead with power and great authority. Let's go, there's work to be done. No i've performed this miracle with the fish to reaffirm my calling on your lives to make you fishers of men no jesus said to them come and have breakfast come and have breakfast and they take the time on the beach to eat bread and fish together food is a gift food is natural but not not supernatural and now we see that food is for sharing You'll hopefully have picked up that one of the uh, practices we're looking to focus on at the moment is around hospitality, uh, with the language of feasting with others weekly. The practice of sharing food together can be found throughout the Bible. Uh, So just a few uh, quick key examples from Abraham, uh, the Exodus, and the New Testament. So Abraham, the Exodus, and the New Testament, short versions for the sake of time. In Genesis 18, Abraham's visited by what are described as three men, that turn out essentially to be God and two angels, what they looked like and what it means to describe some sort of manifestation with God. And two angels being three men is too big a question for this morning, sorry. The point is that the language in the Hebrew makes it clear that Abraham recognized this visitation as a divine encounter. And then verse five says, let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you've come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. And Abraham then, with his wife Sarah, prepares a meal for them of freshly baked bread and freshly prepared meat and milk. It's a fairly substantial meal. It would have taken some time to prepare it and then to eat it together. So God and a couple of angels, and again, just ignore all the questions around that for now, but this is a rare event. They're here for a reason. There are important jobs to do. But sharing hospitality together is a worthwhile diversion from the busyness of life's relentless schedule. If God can take time out of a full diary of revelation, salvation, and judgment that comes across the next few chapters of Genesis, then surely there's a challenge here for us. So that's Abraham. In the book of Exodus, that's the next book along, chapter 12, we read of the Passover. So this is the judgment against Egypt that God brought to rescue his people from slavery and provide a means of escape. It's a dramatic rescue that is so significant that it becomes the first month of the year for the Israelites. They're to celebrate the Passover, it says, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. In other words, all set and ready to go, God is about to move. But how do they mark the Passover? With a meal by feasting together, by taking the time to celebrate God's salvation. And the New Testament then picks up this same idea with the salvation we have in Jesus. He is described as being our Passover lamb. And the night before he went to the cross, he marks the salvation God's about to bring, not with a sermon or some complex religious ritual, but with a meal. Part of this same Passover meal the Israelites had been celebrating for centuries where Jesus broke the bread and shared the cup of wine, saying, this is my body and this is my blood. This food that had been shared together from generation to generation was all pointing to Jesus. And how powerful is that? This is what we now know as communion or the Lord's Supper, depending on your tradition. Um, and this time that the church spent breaking bread together and sharing wine became known as love feasts. In fact, the early church gained itself a spurious reputation for eating a man's flesh and drinking his blood at a love feast, which, let's be honest, doesn't sound great. But in spite of that, these love feasts would still go on because this time sharing food together was powerful and kingdom building. And Jesus himself had a reputation for being a glutton and a drunkard. And to be clear, he wasn't either a glutton or a drunkard, being without sin and exhibiting perfect self-control but he so valued enjoying and sharing hospitality with others that he opened himself up to the accusation. And while communion is something for Christians to share with one another, hospitality more generally is not something to keep just within the church. The Apostle Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where there's, there's a question in the church in Corinth about the risk to Christians sharing a meal with others outside the church in case the meat had been sacrificed to an idol. It's a different context to us, obviously, but it was fairly normal in the Greek culture of the day for the meat you might buy in the market to have been sacrificed to an idol or to uh, other gods of some kind. And Paul writes this in First Corinthians 10 from verse 24, No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. So in other words, Paul's going to great lengths, um, as he does elsewhere, to remove potential theological stumbling blocks that might prevent people in the church sharing a meal with people outside the church. The point he's making is that up to the point of physically participating in the worship of other gods, is to be normal for the church to enjoy the company of outsiders and share hospitality with one another. That was a lot, but this is countercultural in this nation in our day. It's hard enough for immediate family to share a meal together sometimes, and I get it, like jobs, school, clubs, laundry, fitness, homework, exams, conflicting diaries, and timetables, and everything else the world throws at us but we can follow the example of Jesus and the early church by taking the time to stop and share food together. Not as something we need to do in order to get onto the main thing, but that is the thing, that is the activity. And I mentioned uh, a few weeks ago that we'll be participating in a city-wide alpha course in February next year. So we'll have the opportunity as a church to prepare food for the team and our guests to share together which is how each Alpha meeting starts. It's hugely powerful. If you've come through Alpha or been involved in an Alpha before, you'll know this. How many things are there in our modern world where there's something really important to do and discuss, but first, let's just take some time to eat together and share a meal? It's countercultural and kingdom-building, because food is a gift. Food is natural, but not, not supernatural. And food is for sharing, because food is good. Are you with me so far? Food is good. That being said, food is not God. Food is good, but food is not God. As we've seen, our natural bodies and appetites are not wrong in themselves. Uh, They're a part of the way that God's made us. But if we fail to practice self-control, the Bible says we become instruments of unrighteousness. This means we should be careful to not eat too much. And we should take care to eat a balanced diet of enough of the right foods, which is not what most of us really want to do. The theologian um, Michel Koist said this uh, if your body makes all the decisions and gives all the orders, and if you obey, the physical can effectively destroy every other dimension of your personality. Your emotional life will be blunted, and your spiritual life will be stifled, and ultimately will become anemic. So in other words, if our body is the master of us, ruled by the sinful nature, and only wants to do what feels good in the moment and what instantly gratifies at the expense of everything else, then we'll not just have no self-control around the food we eat, but also around issues of all sorts of other behaviours in marriage and in divorce, in our prayer life, in reading the Bible, in coming to church meetings, in going to life group, and so on and so forth. So in speaking of controlling our appetite, this isn't about weight or body image. You may really struggle to keep weight down for a whole variety of reasons, or you may have a metabolism that enables you to eat, and eat with no evidence of where you're putting it all, but either way, and irrespective of one or the other, we can have an unhealthy relationship with food. And the more we indulge indulge unhealthy appetites for excess food or bad food, the harder the battle will become for other sinful appetites and desires. And you can probably see where this is going, given that another one of our practices at the moment is to fast weekly. But conversely, through fasting, holiness and purity become genuinely more appealing. They just do. And sin becomes more and more ugly and unattractive. So let's explore when and why it might be wise and helpful to practice the discipline of saying no to food so we're going to start firstly with a restriction on food so in the opening of the book of daniel in the old testament we read this in the third year of the reign of jehoiakim king of judah nebuchadnezzar king of babylon came to jerusalem and besieged it and the lord delivered jehoiakim king of judah into his hand along with some of the articles from the temple of god these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpines, King, uh, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Mishach, and to Azariah, Abednego. On the face of it, this sounds like a positive thing for Daniel and his friends, like they've really landed on their feet here. God has allowed his people to be carried into exile in Babylon because of their persistent sin, and you can read about that through about half of the Old Testament. Um, But these privileged young men are skilled and educated and fed the food of the king. But if you read between the lines, this is actually an attempt by the Babylonians to obliterate Israelite culture and customs. They're renamed to reflect Babylonian gods with their names changed from meanings like the Lord God of Israel has helped to servant of the Babylonian gods Marduk and Nebo. And they are fed the food of the king, not as a gesture of goodwill, but to remind them on whom they depend, from whom their provision comes. So Daniel objects uh, in verse eight, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way now god had caused the official to show favor and compassion to daniel but the uh, the official told daniel i am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your your age the king would then have my head because of you Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guards took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So these young men chose to restrict their diet to comparatively plain foods compared to the choice food and wine described here, which basically means meat and wine. And this enables them to retain some of their distinctiveness as God's people practicing holiness and personal discipline as they reject the lie that the king of Babylon is their provider and acknowledge the Creator God as the one from whom the good gift of food first came. And they share in this restriction together. There's nothing inherently wrong with the meat and the wine the Babylonians provided, uh, but this is a principle of obedience to a conviction of their consciences and not, incidentally, a healthy eating plan or a weight loss scheme. Paul picks up um, a similar idea in Romans 14 in the New Testament. Uh, So this is from verse 20 where he says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin so in other words your faith and your conscience may permit you to eat anything but in sharing hospitality with others it's wise to consider their needs above yours so as a practical example for us uh, you'll have noticed probably a rise in plant-based eating both inside the church and outside and we heard more about creation care last week again alongside uh, our christmas kindness project to bless some of those in malawi Part of which is about suffering uh, because they're suffering the effects of climate change. And this is a justice issue because the luxury and excess of the West has largely become, uh, that we've become accustomed to, um, has come at the expense of poorer nations in the developing world. And the data shows that reducing or excluding meat from your diet is one of the simplest and most dramatic ways to reduce your individual carbon footprint. I'm not here to say everyone should not eat meat, there's nothing in the Bible that says you need to be vegetarian or vegan, but many are experiencing a conviction of conscience as they see the effects of climate change around the world, that's just one example. So on a really uh, practical level, if you're sharing hospitality with an individual or a family who are vegan or whatever, consider just not eating meat when you share a meal together. If this is a new one for you, it's really and honestly okay. (laughs) Most people in the world don't have the luxury of eating meat every day. All food is clean, says Paul, it may be freely enjoyed, but food is not God. So we're free also to restrict our eating for the sake of others. So now the elephant in the room, and it is tangible, the atmosphere in here between the first half and the second. The elephant in the room, let's talk about full fasting from food. So now we've acknowledged all along with these practices that we've kept them intentionally broad. Uh, To fast weekly can mean something different to you uh, compared to someone else, and that's okay. Uh, But there's going to be opportunity in a few weeks to work through a whole bunch of other things that we should be abstaining from. Uh, So so today, my focus is going to be on food. Uh, And whenever the Bible talks about fasting, as it does frequently, it has fasting from food in view. So I'd also like to acknowledge, uh, before we get stuck into this, Uh, Just at the top here that there may be people here this morning for whom it would be inappropriate to fast from food. There may be medical reasons. Um, If you have any history of an eating disorder, then you shouldn't engage with this practice and you shouldn't fast from food. If you are pregnant or breastfeeding, you shouldn't fast. If you're a younger woman, you should avoid prolonged fasting uh, when you're on your period. And there may be something else I haven't mentioned, something that means you're either not able to, or that it's just not a wise choice, at a particular time to fast from food. I'm in no way trying to be legalistic about this and please don't interpret what I'm saying as trying to impose anything on anyone. But the Bible does speak into this practice of fasting from food in a way that I think will be relevant to many here and can have a real impact on our spiritual growth and our development as a body of believers and empower us as the king's army. So are you ready? Yes, we're ready, can't wait. Let's look at Matthew chapter four from verse one. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Thank you, Matthew. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So this scene follows Jesus's baptism where the father speaks over him um, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And then he's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, to experience the temptations common to all people and to overcome and succeed where everyone else had failed. The devil directly challenges the identity the father spoke over him at his baptism and tries to take advantage of his hunger. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And on the face of it, we see a man that's been alone in the wilderness for 40 days and he hasn't eaten anything. His body is weak. But as uh, the pastor and author John Mark Comer points out here, you might be familiar with him. While it might sound like he would have been at his weakest ever, he was actually stronger than ever for the task ahead. It sounds paradoxical, but through fasting, he was best prepared to say no to the tempter's food because through fasting he was in control of the body and was drawing on the power of the Holy Spirit. While fasting in the wilderness, Jesus was feasting on God. So what looks like weakness on the face of it, being hungry and alone, was actually great strength. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God which is such a good answer, quoted from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament from memory uh, and perfectly demonstrates the reality, I don't need your fake stone bread, I'm feasting on God. After fasting, he was succeeding against the devil's schemes where Adam and Eve had failed in the garden and Israel throughout their history and everyone everywhere ever. And yet, in spite of this, fasting has been described as one of the most abused and least used of all the practices of Jesus. But it is an ancient practice, spanning all the bible and church history. And again, in this nation in our time, it is countercultural and kingdom building as we align ourselves with God's will, empowered by the Holy Spirit to follow the marching orders of our king Jesus. Fasting also shows us what's going on under the surface. So all the horrible stuff we try to keep a lid on and pretend isn't there, so the anger, criticism, envy, distraction, fatigue, it's all exposed through fasting. So this isn't going to make me popular. But if you can't make it to midday when you're fasting without those things surfacing in your life and in your relationships, I've been there, rather than blaming fasting and thinking you can't do it, consider if God might actually be showing something in your character He wants to work on. It's a bit like having a rash, that starts to look redder and more angry when you start treatment for it before it starts to get better. So I'm gonna assume now that you're all completely convinced and you can't wait to start fasting because that's the vibe I'm getting from you all. This is is good, got my eye on the fire exit. So if that's you and it's either a completely new thing or something you've not done much of or not for a long time, uh, which statistically is the vast majority of Christians, so don't despair, you're in good company, I have seven practicalities to help. Okay, number one, plan it. So getting to the end of a busy day when you've not had time to eat lunch doesn't count. (laughs) Plan it in advance for when and for how long you'd like to fast. Number two, try to use the time you would have spent eating to feed on God. So be intentional about devotional time, prayer, Bible reading, meditating on scripture. Memorising Deuteronomy to resist the devil's temptations, etc. Number three, if it's a new thing, start small. Maybe try replacing a meal with a prayer walk. So the time you'd normally eat is replaced, and then you can carry on with the rest of the day. Number four, drink plenty of water. So really practical now. It's important that you keep drinking plenty of water, maybe up to twice as much as you might normally drink. Number five, caffeine if your preference is for a water-only fast, and you usually drink a lot of caffeine, cut back gradually over the preceding days or even weeks for a prolonged fast, or you will get a banging headache and some serious fatigue and symptoms of withdrawal. Although, again, rather than being a problem with fasting, maybe this raises a question about caffeine dependency. Can't wait to check my inbox tomorrow. (laughs) If you want to get in touch, you can find me on ChurchSweet as Ben Green. (laughs) Uh. Number six, try to keep reasonably active. We might think it makes sense to sit still and not move because we're not eating, but actually keeping your body going as normally as possible is beneficial. Again, walking is good. And number seven, the first day is the hardest, depending on how many days you end up doing. But if you've fasted before, but not for more than one day, and you want to try a more prolonged fast, I'd encourage you that the first day is the hardest as your body is um, adjusting. So food is good, but food is not God. We can fast from food to feast on God, and we can feast with others and share hospitality in faith for the great feast at the end of the age. So as the, uh, as the band comes back up, please. Um, I'll finish now with Isaiah chapter 25 from verse six. Isaiah writes on this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples a banquet of aged wine the best of meats and the finest of wines on this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples the sheet that covers all nations he will swallow up death forever the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord, we trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Amen.